Hey besties, it's Elizabeth here. Let's talk for a minute, shall we? I don't know about you, but something about a clean house just makes me feel super calm. Maybe it's the fresh smells. Maybe it's knowing that it's not going to be chaos in a wreck for 15 minutes. But if you're like me, you are constantly looking for cleaning and household products that are ethical, safe, and not full of all of those super harsh chemicals. And that's where Grove Collaborative comes in. They're a new partner of ours, and they have ethical and cruelty-free brands such as Mrs. Myers and Method. Not only do they have cleaning products, but they also sell beauty products, health products such as vitamins, and even stuff for the kids like sunscreen, shampoo. And they're also in the process of reducing their plastic use and switching to glass. So not only are they trying to give you products that are safe for your family, but they're trying to save the planet. You can help support the show as well as get items you already need by going to grove.pxf.io slash horrendous. And by using this link, not only do you help support our show, but you're also going to get stuff that you already need. And then you'll get yourself a free Mrs. Myers gift set with a $30 purchase. And the best part of all is that you're not stuck with some monthly commitment. So go to grove.pxf.io slash horrendous to get your free Mrs. Myers gift set with your $30 purchase today. Thanks, besties. Hi, everyone. It's me, Callie. I know, it's been a while. (laughs) I'm sorry. But this is Horrendous, a best friends podcast. And I'm with Elizabeth, as always, in case you forgot, because it's been two weeks. So, yeah. I mean, they can't really. Well, I'm unforgettable. No, I'm just joking. I have a super annoying voice that just kind of (laughs) resonates. So. Anything new? I just got back from uh, Colorado, and I I enjoyed it. It was beautiful. I, we had a lot of fun. I just, I love nature, but I just really, it's solidified for me. I was not made to be in nature. <laughs> I mean, and again, I had a really good time. We did lots of hiking. You know, we really tried to be outdoorsy. The problem is... I have a, just a really, I don't know if it's irrational, but I have a terrible fear of snakes. And it wasn't even, like, I mean, it was kind of in the back of my head, like, okay, we are in the mountains, we could come across a snake. But I'm like, some of these trails, there's enough people that they're probably just going to stay away. Not a big deal. So we went hiking around this uh, lake called Lily Lake, and... We were on the trail, and all of a sudden, like, I looked down, and there's this tiny little garter snake, and I lost my shit. And Matt turns around, and he's like, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, there's a snake! And then it, like, slithered back into the grass, and he's like, oh my god, you said it was just a garter snake. Why are you freaking out? Like, it's still still a danger noodle. It's still... A, it's still a nope rope. It's it's a snake. I want no part of it. And he's just like, oh my gosh, did that, like, that's just really, you're just being very dramatic. I'm like, no, no, no fucking thank you. Snakes are not for me. Other than that, <laughs> it was really, it was really lovely. And we hiked up to 
uh, this, like, waterfall. And the hike up wasn't bad. It was the going down because for some reason we had to do an incline all the, like, almost the whole way, which was weird because you would think going up would be the incline, going down, not. It, it was very weird. It was very beautiful. I was dying by the end of it, but there was... There was a lot of people on the trail, you know, going back and forth or whatever. And there was this other curvy, curvy gal who was walking the trail, too. And she could tell I was struggling. And she was she was struggling a little bit, too. And she, she looks at me. And this is when, like, kind of a little bit of my faith in people. Like, I, just, and not, I guess not even really that. She looks at me. She's like, you got this, girlfriend. Like, you can do this. We got this. <laughs> and it was just, like, so positive and, like... It was so sweet because she could have just, like, you know, ignored me and kept struggling on her own. And I was, I was like, thank you. So do you. You know, I, I said, it's just I was not – I'm not made for this incline. And she's like, me either, but we, we're going to do this. We got this. So it was really – it was really lovely um, very sweet. That's – yeah, I feel like I never run into people like that. Yeah. It was – it was trust me, it was very out of the ordinary for me. Brady and I did the Stanley, which if you follow us on social media, I posted it on Instagram and our Facebook page. That was really neat. That was very interesting. They do two different types of tours. They do the day tour, which is like more history focused and and stuff like that. And then they do the night tour, which is a ghost tour. And of course that was sold out. I think that one you probably have to book months in advance. And I did not have the foresight or the smarts to do that. And then they also let you, like, if you don't have a reservation for a tour, they do, in fact, let you just kind of wander around the property. They just tell you, hey, like, please don't go in these areas. They're roped off. You're not with a tour. Just don't go there. And But we, we really don't mind. Take all the pictures you want. You know, hang out in the bar if you want to get a drink. Stop at the little cafe here. Get a cider. And so they're very lovely. The staff is very lovely. I took a picture and posted on Instagram of the two front desk people and they were very Trevor and Lord, I forgive me. I forget her name now, but she was very sweet. She followed us on Instagram. So now I feel like even more of an asshole because I forgot (laughs) her name, but they were very lovely because I was a weirdo. I'm like, Hey guys, I have a podcast. We did an episode on the Stanley. Do you guys mind if I take your picture? And... (laughs) They're like, oh, yeah, no, go ahead. And then, like, they asked about the podcast and, like, what our socials were. So, of course, I, you know, gave them all, all that information. Yeah. Anyway, so it was a really nice trip. We had a lot of fun. Brady was bummed that we could not find the pet cemetery at the Stanley. But we kind of did a little more research online and found out it's kind of hidden away. It's not a very obvious spot. So she was very disappointed that she did not get to see that. I am very tired. I had to go back to work today. So that was a lot of fun. I I don't remember what it's like to work. <laughs> I uh that's kind of all I've really been having going on. Not nothing too exciting. Yeah. I've been knitting a lot. You've been knitting a lot? <laughs> yeah. No, we are trying to quit cussing in my household though. So if I accidentally oh. scream at you language, I'm sorry. It's just habit oh. now. Okay, good luck. Um, I'm definitely not trying to do that. I probably should, but good luck. And I think that's awesome you're doing that. <laughs> uh, it sucks because 
all of us, all three of us, we're all still cussing. And every time we say like shit or fuck or damn, we go language talking to ourselves. Okay, Steve Rogers. <laughs> it's annoying. Started shopping at Trader Joe's. I just had some uh, cheese puffs that are fantastic. I've never been to a Trader Joe's before. I think I've told you this. One day, maybe. There's just not one you need super to do close it. to me. Like, I have to I have to drive to De Pere to get to the closest. Or De Pere or Brentwood for the nearest Trader Joe's. I think it's in Creve Corps. It's off of Manchester? Yeah. I I call that De Pere. But, yeah. that that It's either that or Brentwood are the closest ones to me. I, oh, there is one in Brentwood in the promenade. Promenade. However you say yes. it. Okay, I forgot about that one. Yeah, that's all I got. So what what are you telling me about this week? We're keeping with a theme. You and the last B-side told us about the Austin Axe murders, aka the Servant Girl Annihilator. So we're going to keep with that axe murdering theme, and we're going to talk about the Valeska Axe murders. And so... I don't know if it's Velasca. That's what I always thought it was. But when I was doing research, it's spelled V-I-L-L-I-S-C-A. So I think it's Velisca X murders. Velisca, I think. Velisca, yeah. So, yeah, it, it's Velisca X murders. So we're going to talk about that. Awesome. And content warning ahead of time. There are a couple things that might trigger some people. I'll try to do a content warning once I get to it. Before I get into my my notes here, I just want to uh, let everybody know that I did get my uh, information from Iowa Cold Cases, Smithsonian Magazine, Historic Mysteries, VelliscaIowa.com. The Des Moines Register, HorrorObsessive.com, Legends of America, and of course, good old Wikipedia. I'm glad you could find stuff on Wikipedia because <laughs> I couldn't. My good old Wikipedia failed me. And then also, too, something new I've been doing with the blog on our website. I've been trying to link some of our sources, at least the most interesting ones, in the blog. So I will link some of those when I update that. Okay, are you ready? I am. Okay, don't sound too excited. (laughs) That was my excited voice. (laughs) So, I think we can all agree that there is something about just a small town that... Sorry, I I like to be able to see your face when I'm doing this. (laughs) People in small towns and communities like we grew up in. We grew up in a very rural community... People in those types of communities, they think they're safer. (laughs) They're the kind of towns you say you could leave your doors unlocked and you trust your neighbors and you don't feel in danger. You kind of feel like you're very far removed from the crimes of the big bad city. At least like I know that's how our community kind of was. Like everybody was like thought the city was the devil. Villisca, Iowa, very much that same type of vibe, especially prior to 1912. And when I was doing research, it reminded me a lot of Bon Terre, where we grew up. I kept reading about the Casey's gas station down the road. (laughs) (laughs) That's not what made me think of it, but fair enough. That's true. 
So in a town that in the early 1900s had a population of 2,500, Villisca was a close-knit but thriving community in which many businesses were beginning to develop and flourish. And it was attracting attention from a lot of local tycoons, and they wanted to further capitalize on the town's growth. So where we grew up, very much in the late 1800s, early 1900s, was thriving. It was a mining town. The railroad, you know, there was the train went through there. It had a train depot. Train depot still there. Yeah, so that, that that's why it reminded me a lot of where we grew up, because it was the same kind of situation. It was a town that was on the brink of possibly becoming more. It had a railroad station, the town, you know, the trains were constantly going through. And according to Historic Mysteries, it was a quiet town, despite having a National Guard armory, which was actually funded by the residents of Villisca, and it was the first of its kind in the United States. However, despite being a small town where everybody knew everyone and only being disrupted by the occasional train rolling through, the events which occurred on June 10th, 1912 would change all of that. The murder of the entire Moore family and the Stillinger sisters still haunts the small town of Villisca, Iowa, and remains unsolved to this day. Before we actually get into the murders itself, I have a little bit of background on the Moore family. The Moore family consisted of the patriarch, Josiah Moore. He was a prominent businessman in Villisca who owned the Moore Implement Company, which was actually a franchise of the John Deere Company, and his business did really well, and he was considered a true competitor with many other businesses in the area. He was married to Sarah Montgomery, and together they had four children, Herman, Catherine, Boyd, and Paul. The Moors were said to be well-liked in the community and very active in their local Presbyterian church. Sarah was said to be a helpful neighbor, and the family was described as very friendly and liked by everybody. The day of June 9th, 1912, started off like any other day for the Moors. It was a Sunday, so the Moors attended church like they did every Sunday, and following the service, they attended the Children's Day program, which was hosted by the church. It was kind of a, it was a little thing. Think of our Christmas programs at school. So it was basically the the little kids would get up there and sing hymnals and put on a program, basically, for the people of, of the congregation. And Sarah had helped to coordinate this event. So the Moors spent the rest of the day at the Children's Day program and left the church around 9.30 that night with Lena and Ina Stillinger, who were friends of Catherine's, who she had invited over to sleep over that evening. The Moors and Stillinger girls arrived back at the Moore home around 9.45, 10 o'clock. The next morning around 7 or 7.30, Mary Peckham, the Moors' neighbor, noticed that the Moors were not outside doing their daily chores. And the home actually still had all of its curtains drawn, which was unusual as the Moors were usually up and about handling their day-to-day activities. So she decided to go check on them. She knocked on the door and there was no answer. She, I guess, I can, in my mind, she's putting her ear to the door trying to you know, hear if there's anybody in there. But she didn't hear any sign of life. She heard no movement at all coming, in, coming from the house. So this concerned her even more, and she phoned Josiah's brother, Ross, and asked him to please come check on the family. Ross headed over and proceeded to knock on the door, 
And when there was no answer, he began to knock louder and pound on the door, shouting, hoping it would get the attention of somebody in the house. And still, nobody was coming to the door. So he began to kind of panic, and he attempted to look through the windows and couldn't do it because all the shades were drawn. So he finally got his key out to go inside and investigate. He went in and then immediately ran out, looking quite shaken by what he'd seen, and he told... Mary Peckham to go call the sheriff and have them come immediately. So what Ross Moore saw when he walked into that home can only really be described as just a living nightmare. The entire Moore family, including their children and their two young guests, had been savagely murdered in their beds. In the upstairs master bedroom, and just content warning because it is a little gross, not little, it is disgusting. Ross found his brother Josiah and his sister-in-law Mary brutally bludgeoned by an axe in their bed. Their bodies had been covered with a sheet and the bed linens were soaked with their blood. Down the hallway and the other bedrooms, Ross found the bodies of his young niece and nephews, all killed in the same manner as their parents. They were bludgeoned with an axe. And in the downstairs guest room, he found the bodies of the young Stillinger sisters, both killed in the same manner as the Moore family. City Marshal Hank Horton soon arrived at the home, followed by other officers, including medical officer Dr. F.S. Williams. Dr. Williams determined the murders had to have occurred between midnight and 5 a.m. He also determined that each victim had been struck with an axe 20 to 30 times. So this just, this was overkill like it it was it was bludgeoning to a level like that it wasn't just like once twice you're dead like they really were just savage and brutal right what he found most curious was that it appeared the actual blade of the axe had only been used on josiah the rest of the victims had only been bludgeoned with the blunt end so to him, this led him to believe Josiah Moore had been the actual target for the brutality. He also theorized that the Stillinger sisters were last to be killed because the axe, which was partially wiped off, was found in the guest room where they were sleep- where they had been sleeping. Additionally, Dr. Williams determined Lena Stillinger had been awake when she was attacked as she was laying lengthwise on the bed and defensive wounds from fighting off her attacker were present on her body. And then here's another content warning. Uh, Lena was also found with no undergarments on and her nightgown pulled above her waist. Mm. The medical examiners would later determine that she actually had not been sexually assaulted, contrary to what they thought at the crime scene. The windows had all the shades pulled. All of the mirrors were covered and the windows that did not have curtains were covered with clothing. What was also quite strange was not only had Mr. and Mrs. Moore been covered with bed sheets, but all of the other, other victims had as well. The attacks were committed with such force and brutality, the police actually found gouge marks in the ceiling made from the killer from the upswing of the axe. So this person was really, I mean, putting a lot of force behind it. Yeah. It's just weird, like, even talking about the Austin axe murderer, like, how many times they use the blunt end and not the actual axe. But either way, like, an axe is so heavy that... No matter what end you use, it's going to be messy. Oh, 100%. Ugh, sorry. No, it's okay. Also found in the home 
which was pretty much all everybody agreed it had to have been left by the killer, was a pan of bloody water on the kitchen table, presumed to have been used by the killer to clean themselves because they would have been covered in blood, a plate of uneaten food, a two-pound slab of bacon wrapped in a towel, which was left on the floor near the guest room on the main floor where the Stillinger sisters were found, along with a short piece of keychain, which was said to have not have belonged to the Moors. And finally, an oil lamp, presumably used as the killer moved from room to room, was left at the top of the stairs. So basically what happened, what they think happened was after this person just viciously murdered this family and these two guests, they sat down, cleaned themselves up, and then helped themselves to a meal, but then changed their mind because they didn't eat the food. And I guess they were going to steal some bacon, but then they didn't steal the bacon. It was all very, very weird. It was very perplexing. Right. The mirrors being covered, that's what's interesting to me. Yeah, that is very interesting. Not in a, like, I can solve this type of way, but in a, that's a weird thing to do. It is a weird thing to do. And the only thing that I could think of as to why they would do it is because they could not stand the sight of themselves covered in blood. Or maybe they couldn't look at themselves after they did it. Those are, I mean, I again, not an expert, not an investigator, not a, you know, psychological profiler. But that's what makes the most sense to me. But we don't know because it's, you know, this is still an unsolved case. Right. So as more law enforcement began to show up to the Moore home, like any small town worth its salt, word began to spread about the heinous event that had occurred at the Moore home. Onlookers from all over town began to show up to the property to get a glimpse of the macabre scene. And when the coroner, Dr. L.A. Lundquist, Dr. Clark J. Cooper, and Dr. Edgar Huff, and the church minister, Leslie Ewing, arrived, Dr. Williams went in to make his assessment of the time of death. And when he emerged, he told the growing crowd of law enforcement onlookers, don't go in there, boys. You'll regret it until the last day of your life. So he was trying to dissuade people from going in there and looking. And unfortunately, it didn't work because this this really kind of put a little rage inside of me, <laughs> this next part. And it reminded me a lot of the Bell Gunness episode where we were talking about people were selling postcards and photos and stuff. Yeah, ice cream. It was like a, a huge event. So as the crowd grew... The crime scene really began to be compromised because despite Dr. Williams' warning, people could not resist going in to see exactly what had happened. Over 100 people made their way in and out of the home, leaving their fingerprints everywhere, with one person even going as far as to take part of Josiah Moore's skull as a souvenir. And this went on until the National Guard came and kind of shut everything down and kind of blocked off the area to everybody. Who does that? Right? <laughs> That's what I thought. Especially if they were, like, that big of a part of the community and you... Exactly. And But it also... But remember, like, with the Bell Gunness uh, crime scene, people were doing the same thing at the Bell Gunness crime yes. scene. Very grotesque and disgusting. So, what people really could not figure out is why and who would want to commit such a gruesome act. The Moors, like we have said, were a prominent and well-liked family in the Velisca community. They really seemed to have no enemies. So everybody's first thought is that it must have been some deranged drifter. With Velisca being a train town, it could have been quite easy for a drifter to just hop on a train and make their way out of town. 
a number of posses were formed to search for what they imagined would be a blood-soaked killer hiding out in some alley or barn, some outhouse, or a shed in the town of Villisca. Bloodhounds were even dispatched, but turned up nothing. People in Villisca were so full of fear that the killer was going to come strike again that they began openly carrying weapons. The residents were nailing their windows shut. Neighbors formed watch groups and partnered together to stand guard with a shotgun all night, and all of the locks in town were sold out. And soon, neighbors began to slowly become suspicious of one another as rumors and accusations began to make their way around town. Private investigators and newspaper reporters made their way into Villisca trying to get the latest scoop or see if they can find the culprit themselves. And so with that... I am going to go through the uh, list of suspects, and I'll leave it up to you. You contemplate who you think it was. Me or the listeners? Both of you. Both. Listeners. Listener. Listener. The first suspect was a drifter by the name of Andrew Sawyer. Any and every gifter or unaccounted for stranger was considered a suspect. So it was not out of the ordinary that they just picked a random person. If you weren't from Villisca, they basically were going to try to pin it on you. Sawyer just happened to be one of many, but there was no evidence to tie him to the murders. And he was never charged, but his name did come up multiple times in grand jury testimonies. I honestly think Villisca residents just really wanted it to not have been a local Yes. Because you want to say, not our town, our town's safe, we don't have murderers in our town. People mainly thought him because he had gotten a job with the Burlington Railroad the morning of the murder. The rail crew reported he purchased a paper with the murders in the headline and seemed very interested in the case. The crew also said he slept in his clothing, which, if you're working on a railroad, I don't think that that's really weird, but whatever. Right. And he slept with an axe nearby and seemed to talk a lot about the case and whether the murderer had been apprehended. And despite being turned in by his for- his foreman because of the supposed evidence, he was found to have been in Osceola, Iowa, the night the murders happened. And so he couldn't he couldn't have done it. So basically that eliminated him. He was probably just a weirdo who just happened to be very interested in the case because it was a very like gruesome thing so right i mean fortunately being a weirdo does not always make you guilty why not question the guy who went in and took the piece of skull that's the piece weird of the skull, right <laughs> yeah that's that's a little more gruesome Sorry. than just being interested in what happened no you're it's very valid it's a it's a very valid feeling reverend george kelly is our next next suspect And he is still one that many people think really was the actual culprit. He was not from Villisca. He had only arrived in town the morning of the murderers to teach at the children's program. The Morris had attended that day. He left the morning after the murders around 530 a.m. before the bodies were found and is reported to have allegedly told passengers on the train There are eight dead souls in Villisca, butchered in their beds while they slept. Despite the fact that the bodies had not even been found, and no one even knew what had happened yet. Additionally, Kelly, in this content warning, was a known sex offender. He had reportedly long struggled with mental illness, and just FYI, mental illness does not make you a sex offender. Right. 
He had been struggling with mental illness since adolescence, and as an adult, he was accused of peeping at young girls and asking other girls to pose nude for him. So again, just because you struggle with mental illness does not make you a sex offender. He just happened to be somebody who, with mental illness that was a reported sex offender. He had also been convicted of sending obscene material through the mail and had spent some time in a mental health facility because of this. Two weeks after the murders, he returned to town, posing as a reporter, and joined a tour of the house with investigators. Investigators began to start to take a hard look at him after he had sent multiple rambling letters to not only investigators, but the family of the deceased as well. What a fuckface. Language. Like, why? Sorry. Why? I mean, why? Why would you, yeah. why would you do that? Because he had a mental illness? That's, I mean, obviously, but he, ugh, ugh, anyway, it's just a really terrible right. thing to do. One private investigator went as far as to write Kelly back a letter asking him to detail the crimes, specifically looking for details only the real murderer would know. Kelly wrote back claiming to have witnessed the murders and hearing sounds in, in addition to him having witnessed the crime. However, due to his history of mental illness, authorities questioned the validity of his claims. They went as far as to look at him as a suspect, and then once they realized he had mental health issues, they decided not to take him very seriously. Until 1914, when he was sent to a nas- to the National Mental Health Hospital in Washington, D.C., St. Elizabeth's Hospital, after sexually harassing a woman who had applied for a job as his secretary. This prompted investigators to take a look at him again as a suspect. And in 1917, he was arrested for the Velisca murders, at which time the police obtained a confession from him, which was after many hours of interrogation. I'm, I'm wondering if that was a coerced confession or if he just confessed right. just, I mean, it could have been very well he confessed just to confess or he could have been coerced. So who knows? And, he, and either way, he later ended up recanting his confession. He ended up being tried twice for the murders, but he was acquitted. That, I guess, eliminated him, but a lot of people are still pretty firm, like, that he had to have been the guy. Then there was Frank Jones, a Villisca resident who, he's another suspect that people really look hard at and consider him another obvious suspect. Jones was an Iowa State senator, and he was the former employer of Josiah Moore. Moore had worked for Jones for many years in his implement store, before he left to go open his own more implement company. Despite never having formally char- been formally charged with the crime, Jones eventually became the subject of a grand jury investigation and a very lengthy campaign to prove his guilt, which would ultimately destroy his political career. But why would he hate his former employee enough to murder him? You want to guess? Wage theft. No. He loved, or he had the hots. <laughs> He had the hots for the wife. I don't know. That's all I got. No. Those are my two guesses. That's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you. So okay. according to sources, there are actually two main reasons. The first was Moore had actually worked for Jones for seven years, but grew tired of the long hours, which were typically said to be from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. six days a week. Oh, gross. And... Yeah, so in 1907, Moore left Jones' company, and he took the very lucrative John Deere account with him, making him a head-to-head rival with Frank Jones. 
Jones reportedly resented Moore for this, and the two became very bitter rivals. The other reason Frank Jones could possibly want Josiah Moore dead was the rumor that Josiah Moore had reportedly been carrying on an affair with Frank Jones's beautiful daughter-in-law, who was actually very well known in town for carrying on multiple affairs with different men due to her making arrangements for various liaisons over the telephone during a time when all calls had to be placed through the operator. So, despite being called a pillar of the community, Jones may not have been a pillar of the community after all. But there was nothing to prove this, and Josiah Moore denied this when Jones had accused him of it. Jones and Moore hated each other so much they would cross the street to avoid each other, which in a small town like Callie, you and I can yeah. uh, uh, both attest to this. This was a clear sign you hated somebody if you weren't even going to walk on the same side of the street as them. <laughs> However, or you just, well, or if you, it's like you or North County High School, you go to the gravel parking lot to beat the shit out of each other. Yeah, I just went back there to smoke cigarettes. <laughs> I, n- I only went back there to park. I never went back there to smoke or get in a fight. I didn't even go back there to watch the fights. I was very vanilla. Um, <laughs> however, there were many people in town who did not believe a man of Frank Jones's age. And at the time he was 57. They don't think he could have carried out such a brutal murder on his own, but rather would have hired someone else to commit the murders for him. Which leads us to suspect number four, William Mansfield. Mansfield was a serial killer who had murdered his wife, his infant child, and in-laws with an axe just two years after the Velisca murders. He is also believed to have committed axe murders in Paola, Kansas, just four days before the Velisca murders, and was also a suspect in the double murder of Jenny Peterson and Jenny Miller in Illinois. All of the crimes were accessible by train, making it an easy entrance and escape for the killer. However, Mansfield would eventually be cleared of the crime due to payroll records, which showed he was hundreds of miles away in Illinois working at the time of the murder. But people still held on to the fact that Jones hired somebody to do it and were really focused on that it could have been this Mansfield guy. Another theory is that of another serial killer. Some believe that serial killer Henry Lee Moore, no relation to the Moore family that was murdered, he was an alleged serial killer who murdered his mother and grandmother in an effort to get to, to get the deed to their family home in Missouri, and he had murdered them with an axe. However, there was not enough evidence to tie him to the murders of the Moore family or even to the town of Villisca. Another fear, theory focuses on focuses on another serial killer, but this time it's an unnamed serial killer. A year prior to the Villisca murders, a series of murders were occurring in the Midwest. In the fall of 1911, every two weeks, families were found slaughtered in their beds with no motive or suspect to be found. It began with the murder of the Burnham family, followed by the Wayne family, both in Colorado Springs. This continued with a family in Monmouth, Illinois, two weeks later, and seemingly ended with the Showman family in Ellsworth, Kansas. However, in 1912, four days before the Velisca murders, the murder of a family in Paola, Kansas, which was the very same murder that people accredited to Mansfield, 
occurred, leading authorities to believe the serial killer had began their bloody reign again. However, people began to lose interest in this theory, and it sort of faded away from everybody's brain. And there's one final suspect, but I don't really... I only noted it just because it was in the note, you know, it was brought up in a couple different sources. Um, but I really don't think that this is probably the dude. One final suspect is Sarah Moore's brother-in-law, Lee Van Gilder. Van Gilder was known to be a violent man and had r- many run-ins with the police. The Moores and Van Gilder did not get along. However, there was absolutely no evidence to link him to the murders and he was ultimately eliminated as a suspect. The murders of the Moore family and the Stillinger sisters remain unsolved and still haunts the town of Villisca today. After the murders, the home, which was built in 1868, went through eight different owners. It began to languish and deteriorate and was on the verge of being condemned until it was purchased in 1994 by Mr. and Mrs. Darwin Lynn, who worked to restore the home to its original condition. In 1998, it was added to the National Register of Historic Places. It sits on a residential street with no electric, curtains drawn, it has become an attraction for tours and sleepovers due to it being allegedly being one of the most haunted places in the United States, which Callie is going to tell us all about. Are you the type of person that could celebrate Halloween every day? Do you love horror movies just a little too much? If so, Wicked Cat Clothing may be the perfect website for you. WickedCatClothing.com is a small online boutique specializing in eclectic clothing to inspire your inner horror queen. It's a woman-owned business, and you guys know how much we love supporting those. So if you're in the need of some fun horror-inspired apparel, check out wickedcatclothing.com again that's wickedcatclothing.com yeah guys it's not haunted that's that's all i gotta (laughs) say callie callie has a lot of feelings about this and i'm interested i mean so before you get into it let me just say I'm not going to tell you you're wrong, and I'm not going to tell you you're right either. I'm just going to say that a place like that that had such a traumatic event, you would think would be haunted, if you believe in that kind of stuff. That's what my opening is, basically. So we just heard the horrifying history behind the house. What more could there be to talk about? Well, after what happened there... There's bound to be some paranormal activity, right? Right? <laughs> right? You would think that there would be, if you're a believer in that, because there's a lot of people who don't believe in, in ghosts and all of that stuff, and that's fine. That's that's your belief, your opinion, and we're all about letting people be open to their, you know, being open to other people's beliefs, unless you're a like, racist piece of shit, then we really don't give a fuck what you think. Right. Yes, Callie language. Anyway. <laughs> I totally believe in paranormal and ghosts and stuff. So I don't know. I couldn't find much. Usually if a place is haunted, you can find a lot of stuff. I could not find much. So with what Elizabeth said, the Lynn family, after they bought it, they restored it to appear as 1912. They even took out the plumbing. They do have a barn in the back that 
has electricity and has like a bathroom for you to use if you do do the overnight stay, which I will get so into. So then you have later. to walk out to the bathroom in the goddamn dark. I mean, that's what you had to do in 1912. I, it just that's horrifying to me. I'm sorry. That's the one thing I hate about camping is having to go out into the dark. You might step on a snake. Fuck yes. You might step on a snake. A serial killer might jump out and get you while you're peeing. I mean, there's a lot. A bear could get you. That you're going to say you could step on a serial killer. You could. If they're hiding somewhere, you could step on their foot. I don't know. There's a lot of things that could happen to you in the dark. There's Bigfoot out there. There's bears. There's Chupacabra. It's Iowa. It's flat. You're fine. If you say so. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) According to legendsofamerica.com, over the years, there has been a long history of paranormal happenings in the house. Previous tenants have said they have spied a shadowy man with an axe standing at the foot of their bed. Images of bloody shoes, closet doors that open on their own. The sounds of children crying and clothing taken from dressers and closets strewn about the room. In one instance, a man reported that while sharpening a knife, it suddenly turned around and stabbed him in the thumb. He explained that it felt as if someone had a grip on his wrist. One family who reportedly ran out of the house screaming one night moved out that very day. So the Moore House has been investigated by many ghost hunters and paranormal investigative teams from all around the Midwest. Many have spent the night in this house and reported similar experiences. Some of these experiences include the feeling of a heaviness reported around the main stairwell of the house and a strange change in appearance of the upstairs bedrooms at night. Various video and still shots have been taken with orbs and light trails appearing in them, and numerous EVPs have also been captured in the house. I did not go through and listen to 20 hours of EVPs. If you would like to do that, there are a ton of them on YouTube. The one that I found interesting, there was a little girl who said, who like whispered, the killer is, and then you couldn't hear anything. And from, and that's why we drink covered the hauntings of it as well. Mm-hmm. And they, they actually took the time to listen to the EVPs. So if you don't want to listen to them yourself and you just want to listen to somebody else tell you what they were, go check out that episode. I'll link it in the blog. I just, I don't have time to listen to that much. And it's hot here. No, that's and fair. I don't expect you to. That's okay. My laptop was really hot and I was listening to music. <laughs> I have lots of excuses. It's okay. There are consistent reports of children's voices that seem to be whispering. At times, the children will actually be heard laughing or playing with toys in an empty room. Objects will move on their own. Doors will open and close and sometimes even slam with no explanation. Disembodied footsteps will be heard, including voices from the dead. Apparitions and shadows have also been reported. Sometimes these shadows seem to quickly come into view and then disappear. Many say that the most intense time to investigate this house is at 2 a.m. This is the time 
of the night when a train passes through the town of Villisca. The whistle of the train is thought to trigger the residual events of the murder. It is also widely believed that the killer used the masking sound of the local locomotive to sneak through the house and murder the victims one by one. Many investigators have witnessed a light fog filling up the master bedroom at the point when the train whistle is first heard. The fog appears to move from room to room, just as the killer may have done. Eventually, the fog fades away, followed by the sound of dripping blood. That reminds me of the movie, was it Dollhouse Murders? Or Dollhouse in the Attic? There was a dollhouse in the attic. There's the dollhouse murders. The dollhouse is in the attic and it reenacts the murders of the family, the dolls in it do. Yeah, that's what that reminds me of. Except it's the whole house. I remember reading that book. I don't know if I read the book. I definitely used to rent the movie all the time, though. That and Ghost Rider. (laughs) I never watched the movie, but I did read the book a couple times. That and Wait Till Helen Comes. That was another scary one. I didn't read that one for sure. I've never heard of that. Oh, it's scary. (laughs) They move into a house and there's a cemetery nearby and the little girl makes friends with the ghost named Helen and she threatens everybody. Wait until Helen comes. It sounds like that kid's son grow up to be a serial killer. Possibly. (laughs) Also, there are reports of people feeling as though they're being followed through the corridors. People also get bad vibes as they go through the house. In 2014, a second tragedy occurred. A man staying there on an overnight ghost hunt inexplicably stabbed himself, an event that made national news. His name was Robert Stephen Larson Jr. and he was from Wisconsin. He was in the ICU for several days and hasn't spoken about the events since or ever really. According to reviews on TripAdvisor, most people seem to feel an eeriness to the house. I mean, people were murdered there. That's, I mean, anyway, go ahead. Right. (laughs) A lot of the reviews were, I didn't see anything, but as soon as you walk into the house, you feel a spookiness or an eeriness. Yeah. But that could be associated with there was eight people murdered here. A few have experienced children on EVP pictures with orbs, and children's toy balls moving seemingly by themselves. A guide said that as a local, she knew that most people in the town didn't buy into the ghost stories and that kids like to tap on the windows when overnights are going on. Of course. (laughs) Right. Kids are assholes. (laughs) Right. I read that I was like, oh, if we had a haunted house that people stayed the night at, we definitely would have done that. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, Bon Terre had Mansion Hill. That was a bed and breakfast. But yeah. that closed down and became private property. So you couldn't really go mess with that. Right. According to VelliscaMovie.com, while filming for the documentary Velisca Living with a Mystery, they had never had any paranormal experiences day or night. Also, according to the same website, they have interviewed and or received emails from every former resident from the Moore House between 1936 and 1993, and they all say the house was not haunted. Kind of like Amityville. Right. But according to Legends of America, they said that residents did leave 
like move out quickly and because they didn't want to live in a flipping murder house well on veliscamovie.com they have an interview with the family who lived there in 1936 through 1942 okay. rent was $8 a month oh if only but it was with one of the daughters that the interview happened with it was featured on the show proof positive that aired on sci-fi and their analysis of orbs captured on film were declared not paranormal they found no evidence of hauntings Scariest Places on Earth also featured the house. According to VeliscaMovie.com, they fabricated evidence, newspaper articles, photographs of the murder victims, and included a woman who identified as a former Velisca resident who was apparently an actress. That tracks for me. And let me tell you why. So Scariest Places on Earth was produced by the same company who produced Real Scary Stories, which Mm -hmm. was the show that I was on. And they did fabricate a couple of things in our episode. So yeah, that that totally tracks for me. I I believe it 100%. The house also appeared on an episode of Ghost Adventurers. Of course it did. On the Velisca Axe Murder House website, VeliscaIowa.com, Zach Baggins is quoted as saying, the most intense case of good versus evil I have ever come across. But I feel like he says that about every place that they go. I'm curious. I didn't watch the episode or anything. I'm curious what they showed on the episode because like, it can't be much. (laughs) Maybe because I have Discovery Plus now. Hashtag not an ad, but Discovery Plus if you want to sponsor us. Hit us up. Right. (laughs) Ghost Adventures is on Discovery Plus, so maybe I'll go watch the episode. But I really, honestly, I feel like Zach says that every gosh dang episode. I just don't watch it. Because he's very, he's, I don't either. I really, I like watched a couple episodes of it. He's so dramatic. There's a reason that Nick left the show um, and started his own ghost show with one of the people from Paranormal State, which I did used to watch. With that said, I really feel, yeah, I, I think I that's just honestly what he says about every place. I'm sure he got possessed while he was there. I'm sure he got pushed. I'm sure he yelled at some ghosts. Maybe. He yelled at Aaron. They made Aaron go be by himself in the dark somewhere. So you can visit the house at 508 East 2nd Street, Villisca, Iowa. It seems like they're open like April through the end of October. Okay. So like peak, like tourist season. Yeah. It didn't say, I couldn't find anything on the website for how the time frame that like hours of operation yeah well no i have all that just like the time frame like if it is actually april through october or not oh i I don't know okay i gotcha they have day tours or overnight tours day tours are cash only between the hours of 1 p.m and 4 p.m tuesday through sunday they are closed on mondays with the last tour starting at 3 30 p.m at this time, there are no children under seven allowed. Masks are required. It's interesting you say that because the Stanley does not allow kids under the age eight on their tours. Huh. Well, it seemed like this is a new like COVID thing because it says at this time. 
Yeah. So. No, the Stanley, their, their thing is, yeah, no kids under eight. If you want to do a tour with your kids, we have a special, like, separate tour for that. But they're not operating that right now because of COVID, I think. So, okay. yeah, I just, I, I thought that was interesting. Anyway. Right. <laughs> Tours are limited to six to ten people at a time for 15 minutes. The price of an individual daytime tour is $10 per person and seniors over 65 are $5. Overnight pricing is $428 for groups of one to six people. There is a $75 charge for each additional person and a deposit of $200 is required. Overnight tours begin at 4 p.m. and start with a walkthrough tour of the house and the grounds. Checkout is at 9.30 a.m. and there is a limit of 10 people for an overnight stay. And you have to bring your own sleeping bags and pillows because you're not allowed to sleep on the furniture. The Sally House does that, too. You can stay the night in the Sally House, but you can't sleep on the furniture. Yeah. And like I said, there is a barn in the back that has a restroom in it with electricity. The house doesn't really have electricity from what I was reading. If you walk out to the barn at night to go pee, you'll get murdered or bit by a snake. Or you might step on a a serial killer. You might also step on a serial killer. My sources, real quick, before I forget, because I have to go back to the top of my notes, uh, were Vice.com, RoadTrippers.com, HauntedJourneys.com, OccultWorld.com, VeliskaMovie.com, VeliskaIowa.com, which is where you'll get all the tour information if you're in the area, TripAdvisor.com, and LegendsOfAmerica.com. All right. So, Callie. Yes. First... Why do you not think it's haunted? I guess based on just because there wasn't a lot of stories. There's not a lot of stories. A lot of people from TripAdvisor and like Yelp as well, like just reading reviews. They're like, yeah, nothing happened. I even went as far to look at Reddit to see if there were any Reddit user stories. And the ones that I came across were people saying, hey, I've done paranormal investigations at a lot of places. I even went to Villisca, nothing happened. So there are the few stories there are that is the general consensus. The guy who stabbed himself, Mm -hmm. not the one who stabbed himself in the thumb, but the one who stabbed himself. The one who was in the hospital, yeah. Yeah, he had recently lost his job. And because of a medical condition, and part of the medical condition was brain damage. Okay. And for some reason, he was in the house by himself. The other people that he went that went with him, they were outside for some reason. I don't know why he was he was in the upstairs bedroom, and it happened at like I gotcha twelve forty five is when the call went into the police department. So like, there's just there's not a whole lot of information. It's everything I've heard. Martha Lynn, she's the nicest person. But a lot of people have a problem with how touristy it is. Like, you can buy t-shirts that say, I survived the Villisca axe murder house. Well, it's it's like when you go to the Stanley and you go to their gift shop. I posted pictures of some of the stuff in their gift shop. Like, it's, 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 I mean, it's chinky, you know, it's, it's cutesy and chintzy and... 
you know, it's all in good fun. Right. But I think sometimes there's a, a line you need to not cross. I don't know. I mean, yeah. with the Stanley, it's different because nobody was murdered there. I think, you know, it's like going to. So for, for me, I liken it to this. Now, like going and touring it, like I don't have a problem with that. Like, I mean, it's, it is a historical home. Right. You know, it is on the National Landmark Register. So, I mean, that's all good and well. Go tour it. You know, it's like going to the Lizzie Borden house. Go tour yeah. it and stuff. But the t-shirts, like I survived the Velisca Axe murder house. It reminds me of uh, a TikTok I saw today. And I, I know we're probably going to alienate some people. So I apologize. But I, I, but I don't at the same time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, to anybody this offends, I mean, I'm sorry. But just think about how ghoulish it is. I saw a TikTok today. Somebody went to... So, you know, the Chris and Shannon... 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 Isn't that how you saw her... Said her name? Shannon Watts? The Chris Watts. He murdered his wife and two daughters. Oh, yeah. In Colorado, right? Mm-hmm. So, there was a TikTok today that I saw that... People literally, like, and I'm sure that these people are not the only ones. They went to the home, to the actual Watts family home that obviously is vacant now. Right. And, like, we're holding up their camera and they're, like, looking in the windows and recording, like, the inside through the window and stuff. Or, to me, it would also be, like, because I know people, I'm sure, do this, too. Like, drive past the Jean Benet house and take pictures. Right it's it's hard like i don't want to sound like a hypocrite because you know i you know i've gone to the lent mansion you know and people died by suicide there and you know you went and saw the cecil hotel but i think there's a difference between that because those are actual like landmarks those are places you can go tour and whatnot rather than going to a murder house and recording through the the fucking window you know what i mean yeah i don't Uh, know just something about that seems very ghoulish to me i mean it's the same like they tore down the gacy house for a reason right because everybody knew where it was at everybody knew what it looked like so they tore it down and they ended up building another house on that property but it looks nothing like the gacy house Mm -hmm. or another example there was a murder in Columbia, Illinois, about five minutes from where I live. And I think you remember this. Uh, he murdered his wife and sons. I can't remember his name. He was the, he was a security guard at the Judith Joyce Myers Ministry. Okay. And this happened in 2009. And that house in the neighborhood sat vacant for a while. And then they ended up tearing it down. Mm-hmm. So, I mean... I don't know. I think that there, and I, we've talked about this a couple times. You don't want to begrudge anybody from trying to make a buck, especially right now when times are tough. Right. But I just, I think that there's a certain tact you have to take when you are trying to capitalize on something like that. So I saw a post, and again, I'm getting really off topic here, and I'll try to rein it back in. On Facebook and a discussion group I'm in for a podcast I listen to. And you know the filter people are doing now with the Disney photo. Like it makes you look like a Disney character or whatever. Oh, yeah. The Viola So somebody, 
Somebody did that, but with mug shots of serial killers. <sighs> like, I get it was to be funny, but I think it goes back to kind of a hero worship almost of these people and these things. There's nothing wrong with being curious or interested in learning about and educating yourself. But if you're walking around with a shirt that says, choke me like Bundy and eat me like Dahmer, like there's something fucking wrong with you. So anyway, that's all I really have to say. I mean, I serve and that's a legitimate t-shirt that I did see on the internet. But with that said, like I survived the Velasca axe murder house is not by and far the worst or tackiest thing I've seen. Right. Yeah. When they do the tours, it's very historical. And then people yeah. will ask, like, the staff. Respectful like, and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. Then they ask the staff, like, oh, what have you experienced here? And it'll go from there. Yeah, I think that that's totally appropriate. I think if you're approaching it in a respectful manner. Right. Then that is completely different than, again, going to a, a vacant home where a woman and her small girls were murdered by her disgusting husband and peeking through the windows. Like, it's disres- that's disrespectful. Right. Anyway, back to <laughs> Velisca. So who do you, like, who jumps out to you as the most logical suspect? If you're hitting these people 20 to 30 times, it's personal. It's not somebody they didn't know. Oh, 100%. I could see it being Frank hiring the Reverend to do it since he knew the Reverend was only in town for a night. Yeah. Because the Reverend would see them leave the church, know when they're home, know. Yeah. Could kind of see when they're going to bed and then he was out the next morning. Makes perfect sense. But like, I don't know, the Reverend wouldn't be passionate enough to hit them 20 to 30 times. To hit, to, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of where I was, I thought about it, too, was it, to, when you are bludgeoning somebody, serial killers is not typically a personal thing. Right. And this was a very seemingly personal attack. Right. And, yeah, I'm on team. It had to have been somebody that knew the family, especially if they were able to access the home. And make their way around very easily. Yes. And especially if they started with the adults. They purposefully started with the adults. Right. Yeah. So I I don't know. Like, I don't think Frank Jones did it himself. Because being a senator, you know, they don't get their own hands dirty. I kind of lean towards that he probably paid somebody to do it. However, like you said... To hit somebody 20 to 30 times in the head, that's a very personal thing. So, so it Jones had to be somebody did, else that was like Team Frank. Team Frank Jones. So, which leads me to, because I mean, there was the rumor he, Josiah Moore had been sleeping with Frank Jones's daughter-in-law. So maybe, you know, his son did it. Because I didn't mm-hmm. see anything about the son in any of the notes that I, in any of the research I did, which I thought was interesting because they all they mentioned was you know Josiah Moore allegedly had an affair with his daughter-in-law but they didn't like oh his son so-and-so's wife so I mean yeah it seems like a very personal thing I, I, 
I mean, serial killers do some really jacked up stuff. Yeah. Based on the information I gave you, do you think the house is haunted? I mean, like I said at the at the beginning of your half, I I'm a believer as well. Uh in in the paranormal. Like I I I I try to say I'm a skeptic, but I, I'm 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 a believer. Like I'm not gonna lie. I'm a believer. I try to be skeptical. I try to approach and debunk everything and be very scientific about it, but I am a believer. Like I don't rule the possibility of it out. I mean, with such a traumatic event there, like you said, like it would have to be haunted, right? Yeah. Um, but I think just based on like the lack of substantial experiences or evidence from people i mean it may not be Uh, and the evps the evps are tricky because people are very easily influenced like for instance if you listen to something and you think it says one thing and somebody says oh well i think it says help me and then you listen to it again you're like oh you're right it does say help me but then somebody else listens to it and they think it says excuse me and then you're like oh no listen to it again i heard help me you know so it's so the power of suggestion plays a big role into evps especially when they're very blurb you know like Mm -hmm. muffled and i don't want to say there's not real evps i'm sure that there are i don't know i i mean i kind of agree with you it may not be i don't want to say that it's not but i mean it's leaning towards towards no for me. I don't feel like it is. If it was, you you think that there would be more stories. Yeah, it was like pulling teeth, trying to find stuff. Like, especially with somewhere that is that popular, too. Yeah, yeah. Some is a, it's a tourist attraction. Yeah, some of the places in Alton, like, they're not that popular, so... There's not going to be yeah. that and many it's stories also, on it. Yeah. And it, Alton's not a, I mean, Alton's a bigger town, but it's not like, you know what I mean? So, right. yeah, I, I lean towards maybe not. Hopefully those people are at rest. Yeah. I would like to think that they were after being so savagely murdered, especially the children. I would love to think that the children are at peace. Yeah, it's just very, it's a very sad story. It is. Whether there's hauntings or not, it's still very sad. And the fact that it's re- it remains unsolved, I think, is another reason. It adds a certain extra something, you know, to the story that it's a cold case. Mm-hmm. And the, you, like you said, it, it, it reminds me of Amityville. You know, you had mentioned that many people have lived in this house until, you know, it started to languish and deteriorate. And they all said, like, yeah, no, we didn't have any experiences there. And then, and then, like, with Amityville, like, same thing, you know, you had the Warrens say that was the most, which the Warrens in themselves, they're very problematic individuals <laughs> for me. I have a lot of feelings about the Warrens. We need to do an episode on the Warrens. We're gonna. <laughs> <laughs> I will one day. I just have a lot of feelings about them. And it's mainly because of, like, Amityville and the... And infield poltergeist because they were a fucking course involved in that. They're just very problematic for me. And they said Amityville was the closest to evil she has ever been, right? Right. But people have lived there. And they're like, no, we've never experienced any of the things that 
the Lutzes said that they experienced. And that's a whole different story that we'll get into at one point when we talk about Amityville, because we're going to have to talk about Amityville. That right. was a giant fucking hoax. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I think that you would think that with the, such a traumatic event having happened there, like, again, like Amityville, multiple people were murdered in this home very brutally. And there are people who have said they have had experiences there, but there's actually been people who have lived there and never experienced anything. But then people could argue, like, well, you're not open to it. And that's why you haven't experienced anything. So it's a double, I mean, I can see both sides of it. Yeah, but I think if it's going to be that haunted and you're not open to it, you're going to experience something regardless. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree 100%. So, but, like, that's not to discredit people's experiences. No, there. We, you don't ever want to discredit people's experiences. I mean, you want to be able to believe that people had these things happen to them. But when the, the evidence just really isn't there to support... I mean, because, yeah, these people, without a doubt, probably went into the house and felt a very ominous feeling. But you're walking into a house where eight people were murdered. Right. Yeah, that's that's all I've got. Well, that was nice and cheery. It was. Oh, happy Pride, everybody. Yes, that too. I was listening to another podcast today. I'm not going to call them out. <laughs> they, you know, it's the beginning of Pride and they had to go on their, their happy Pride tangent. And it just seems so disingenuous. But sincerely from Callie and I, happy Pride. Yes. We love you. You keep forgetting, like, what day it is or month or year. Yeah. Well, you don't have a job anymore, so it's all kind of running together for you. But, yes, happy (laughs) pride to our LGBTQ plus friends, family. We love you, and we hope you're having a good pride month. Yes. I super hope you're having a good pride month. Okay. So I'm just going to go into where you can find us. And that is Facebook and Instagram at horrendous.podcast.com, not.com, just (laughs) horrendous.podcast. Twitter and Twitch is horrendouspod, Patreon, Patreon, I don't know why I can't say that word, that's horrendouspodcast. You can email us at horrendous.podcast at gmail.com and you can visit our website which has all our affiliate information and a cool blog that Elizabeth writes that I need to step up and start writing some too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but well, I'm that, waiting for those down the rabbit hole with Callie. I've just been playing Sims 4. Nobody wants to read about like what my Sims did today. <laughs> I mean, Brady might because Brady loves the Sims. You can start texting each other about the Sims. Well, Jake and I woohooed once today. On oh, my God. Sims. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> but that that website is horrendouspodcast.com. Follow me for some more uh, Sims tips. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. That's all I got. Do you have anything else? Nope. All right. So thank you, besties. Thank you, besties. Until next time. This has been... Horrendous, a best friend's podcast. Bye.